and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. I'm JT, and as always, I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Well, everyone, I hope you're doing well all over the world, wherever you are. After we finished the last of the Halloween episodes, I said to you there wouldn't be an episode right away, and I'd talk to you when I talk to you. And it's just turned into about, well, nearly a month of dead air, so I'm sorry for that. Uh, but as I say to people many times, when I was younger, and I won't go too far aside, but I just want to say this really quickly. When I was younger, I used to get upset, especially when older people would tell me they would always be there for me or whatever, they'd make time for me, and they didn't. And then as I've matured and um, gone through life myself, I realized that a lot of times with people, life just gets in the way. People have the best of intentions, but life gets in the way, and they can't always do what they say, or they can't always fulfill some of those promises. And as I've aged, I fully understand, and I say that to people. When people apologize to me, oh man, sorry, it's been a long time since we've caught up or whatever, hey, life gets in the way. Now, of course, it's much different if it's something like, I don't know, uh, I need your help moving house or something, and somebody doesn't turn up, that's something different. But as for just the day-to-day -day things, life gets in the way. And I'm sure you've all been through that yourselves. And uh, yeah, I've had uh, I've had some other things to do as well, but for a lot of the time I've been off air, I've just unplugged from the world. The world has been getting to be a more and more negative place as far as just what I see out there in general. Not individual people, not the listeners, of course, but just the media, just the world, the war drums beat, the uh, the division drums beat, the division bell, as Pink Floyd would say. The uh, either you're with us or against us attitude of, of people. Yeah, I, I just, it's been good to tell you the truth. I haven't watched the news. I followed a little bit of the baseball offseason free agency movements and things like that. But as far as even social media, I just haven't been there. So for that, I do apologize. But yeah, I, I needed it, number one. And number two, like I said, I have had some other things in my day-to-day -day life that I've been working on as well. And I will continue to have more of those. But in the short term, what we're going to do is we're just going to turn things on its head here at the Paranormal Sun. Now, what I mean by that is I'm just going to throw up episodes as I can do them. So you might get two or three episodes in a week. You might not get any for a little while, and I'll do my best to keep you updated. But uh, in trying to work around some of the roadblocks I've had, and when I say roadblocks, it's things like when I got into the Betty and Barney Hill story, it was I knew it was a big story and a lot of claims and everything else, but it's much bigger than I realized when I started getting into it and wanting to do it properly. Rather than being a trilogy at most, as I thought, it's turned into a saga, and there will be more coming up, just, just not this episode. This episode, basically, I want to get back on air, get some stuff out there for you, so we're going to do some news for you. You're going to get the news of the damned, and I've got some story sent to me from Trey way back in October, Trey in Portland. So Trey, I'm going to finish those off tonight, and then I've got a few others that I also had that I wanted to cover. And then Trey sent me some other ones, so I'll definitely have some more news episodes out over the over the coming 
week or so. And also, this is going to be a full-blown episode, so it's going to be a season four, whatever episode we're up to, four or five, but it'll be a full episode. It's not going to be a bonus. Uh, I will, I'll keep bonus episodes, but I think I'm going to just keep those to things like a half an hour, like when I did the, the HP Lovecraft story, things like that. But anyway, folks, I do hope that you're doing well wherever you're listening from. I hope that those of you in the Northern Hemisphere, I hope the weather's not been too bad. Again, I've literally been unplugged. I've been off the internet. I haven't been watching the news, so I'm not quite sure what's going on up there as far as the weather and that. The the only things that I've really heard is stuff that I might run across when I've been looking on the internet at uh, things like what's going on in baseball and that. So, uh, yeah, really, I've been quote-unquote off-grid for a while. And I've had some people approach me to ask about being on the show, and I've had to go back to them. I think the one guy was about three weeks ago. I just, I've said to him today, hey, look, sorry, just now getting to this, but um, it is what it is. I've just been off the grid, so to speak. So anyway, my friends, I do hope you're doing well. Uh, as always, like I say, for those of you who want to support the program, if you want to support the program, first and foremost, tell someone who you think would enjoy this program. Let them know about the program. That's the first thing you can do. Second, you can go and like and follow us on any of the social media. So Instagram and Facebook is where I spend most of my social media time. And again, like I say, I've been doing a very poor showing of that as of late. But uh, again, life gets in the way. And I know, yes, don't don't get me wrong. I enjoy what I do. I want to I want to grow the show and everything else. But it's also got to be sustainable. And I know when that time comes that I go back to work and I start doing a day job, it's, there's no way it's going to be sustainable for me to do what I did on social media before, meaning when I was posting seven, eight, nine videos a week. It, it just can't happen. There's no way I can do that in a normal week. And again, you know, I, I don't blame them, but uh, the Russian oligarch hasn't come forward. The Chinese multi-billionaire business owner hasn't come forward to sponsor the show. So the reality is it will be on me. And that's absolutely fine. Don't get me wrong. But all I'm saying is it's not like I'm going to have money to hire all kinds of staff and everything else. So like I say, if you want to support the show, you can do that. You can go and go to the podcast platforms where you can rate and review the program as well. You can go there and rate and review the show, like I say. But the main one to me really is just word of mouth. Just tell someone else you think might be interested. And again, if there's something you want me to cover or a news article or anything else, drop me an email like Trey has at theparanormalsun at gmail.com. So just the same name as the show, The Paranormal Sun. All one word, no underscore, nothing like that. Theparanormalsun at gmail.com. You can also find us through the link in the show notes. Click on that and take you to like a Linktree website, and that'll take you anywhere you want to go. You can also find that same link if you go to Instagram and click in the bio and then click the link there. It'll take you to the same place. But basically, folks, I do hope that the world is well for you. I know it's nearly Thanksgiving in the U.S. To my U.S. listeners, I'm sorry I don't have any kind of special Thanksgiving-y type um, episode planned or anything like that. Uh, again, sorry, life's gotten away. I just, I, I didn't really have anything kind of circled on my map or anything anyway. Don't get me wrong. 
But hopefully we get some of these news articles out there for you in the next few days, and then you'll have some of that to chew on after your Thanksgiving turkey and uh, stuffing and mashed potatoes and uh, whatever else you may have. I do realize it's a big, big spike in the prices in the U.S. this year in the cost of food and all of that. Part of it's the supply chain issues. Part of it's uh, shortages, work shortages, you know, people not, not going back to work taking those low-paying jobs. So, uh, yeah, I know it might not be what some of us remember as Thanksgiving. I do get asked from time to time, what do we do here in New Zealand for Thanksgiving? The answer is not a lot. Unless you've got an American or a Canadian, because Canadians have, I don't know all the details, but I know Canadians have their own Thanksgiving. It's a different date. Basically, what I always did was when I was working, when I was at work, I would go around and go out of my way to genuinely, from the bottom of my heart, tell the people that I was thankful for, be it my boss, be it coworkers, be it friends. And then also I would email or text my close friends and that and family and just tell them how much they meant to me and thank you for everything they've done for me. And I truly do appreciate it. So that's what I would do here. In the past, in the years gone by, I've had a few Thanksgiving dinners. But the problem here is that at summertime, it is quite hot. Secondly, like I say, it's just another Thursday here. So unless you're going to take a day off of work to do the cooking and everything else. And again, when I do it, it's just me. Um, yeah, just it, it, it's basically, folks, it's just too much work. If I had a group of people here, if I had three or four other people or some family or something that wanted to get together and do it, yeah, I'd do it. But it's just too much work for one person. I've done pumpkin pies and that in the past, but again, it's... It's just a lot of work. So this year, what I'm thinking of doing is here in New Zealand, uh, my listeners in the UK and Australia, you'll understand, we've got what we call roast shops here. So you go to the roast shop and you get a like a dinner with uh, roast meat. So I usually get lamb, but you can get pork, uh, beef. I don't think they have turkey. I think they have chicken. And then you get some roast vegetables like uh, uh, roast potatoes that are kind of, um, they're not like baked potatoes, folks. Think of more almost like, they're almost like quartered up kind of pre-fried potatoes, uh, almost like wedges, but a bigger version of potato wedges for those of you in the U.S. And then you get some peas and, and uh, squash and that. Here in New Zealand, they say pumpkin, but it's not pumpkin. It's actually a squash. And then um, you get gravy, like I say. So you get that, and that's basically like a roast dinner at least. And it might not be Thanksgiving, but it's pretty close. And with the heat and the, the problem and everything else, I'd rather go and spend 20 bucks a head to go and do that. So that's probably what my Thanksgiving plans will be. Aside from that, I don't have anything special planned, i.e. any specific thing I'll watch or anything I'll do. Uh, Thanksgiving was always a time for us with family and my family's all gone basically i've got a few family members around the world but none of them are here really all i'm saying is it it it, it will be a day for thinking about those who have gone and for years gone by uh, but i'll try and keep it positive as i do my best to from day to day so anyway folks that gives you an idea of what thanksgiving is down here like I say, we're heading into summer, so it's quite warm. It's into the 80s on an average day, so it's not the kind of weather you really want to be in the oven baking 
doing stuff. And and a few years ago, a turkey here was about sixty or eighty dollars for a whole frozen turkey, and you couldn't even get them fresh. And it's probably about the same now. They're not a very common thing here. Some people have them for Christmas, but that's a bit of a British or UK holdover. So it's not something that the average person has here. Most people in New Zealand have a barbecue for Christmas. So, folks, uh, that's Thanksgiving. That's a wrap on Thanksgiving. Like I say, I, I won't even bother, I don't think, making a pie or anything this year. And with that said, like I say, I do hope that you have an excellent Thanksgiving. And make sure you have seconds for me wherever you are. And now it's time for us to get into the news of the dam. Now, as always, with the news of the dam, we got a bit of background on it. For those of you who may not know, there was a gentleman in the early 1900s named Charles Fort. And Charles Fort was very curious about the things that we enjoy, meaning cryptids and ghost ships and lights in the sky and disappearing people, out-of-place artifacts, all those sorts of things. So Mr. Fort, over the years, gathered 40 or 50,000 index cards full of information on these different cases from around the world, from different magazines and newspapers. And then he wrote a series of books, and it was four or five books. Again, long-term listeners of the show will know I can never remember how many books he published, but it was either four or five. And I I did actually cover it in, in one of the first episodes when I talked about the books that he did. Well, anyway, Mr. Fort referred to any information that was excluded or ignored by science as damned data. So anything that science basically said, well, we can't explain this, so we'll just ignore it so it'll go away. There's no need to talk about it because it's just, it's not worth talking about. We're not going to waste our breath. So as I say, Charles Fort referred to that as damn data. Therefore, the name of this segment on the paranormal sun is now and forever shall be the news news of the So first we're going to cover over these articles that Trey sent me. And the first one, and again, folks, remember that these are about a month old, so I do apologize for this. So the first one is from www.mediate.com, and uh, so it's media, I-T-E. So I don't know if that's media, Italian, or what, but I'm sure you can find it anywhere if you search it. And I'll have a link in the show notes, as always. And it says, one of the clearest UFO sightings ever Says the son of this video from Chicago. Right, so it says British tabloid The Sun shared a video on Twitter Saturday featuring footage caught and widely publicized earlier in October over Chicago, Illinois, calling it calling it one of the clearest UFO sightings we've ever seen. The video has been making rounds on various websites and publications for a few weeks, but The Sun's latest tweet on the subject picked up steam pretty fast for its presentation and for those of us who missed it the first time around. In the intervening weeks since the incident, no official explanation has been made, although there have been plenty of theories offered, from balloons to a kite and more. Yeah, and I actually I do think I remember seeing this making the rounds. I'm just watching it here as we talk, and it looks really weird. It looks like, um, I don't know, like a crane or... An easel 
like a, a a painter's easel, like the the stand without the with without a canvas. Yeah, it, it it's an odd one. So it says, uh, it's a cool, if brief footage, but the dramatic flair added by the sun really gives it that October feel, don't you think? Because they added some like, uh, some some really um, dramatic music in the background, kind of like horror movie type music. So so yeah, the 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 people recording it are just talking about. Now, they've seen other people's recordings, and they've always thought, wouldn't it be weird if we saw something? But yet, it it does look very odd. And the thing is, I don't think it's a mirage. Like, you might say, oh, it's a mirage of a crane, if that's what it looks like. But, yeah, look, it's it's really odd-looking, folks. It's something really different. Now... Who knows? Uh, I'm sure by now there's thoughts out there floating around about what it could be. See, like it. One of the things here is they say it, it's it, it it's a kite. You know, it could be a kite. But if it's a kite, it looks like it has no canvas, which is strange, because you can see like a frame, kind of like a, a like if you sit there and you get a young child to draw a house, right? With with the roof as a triangle and then a square for the house. It kind of looks like that, and like down the bottom, like another line coming down from the bottom of the house. But I don't see any cloth. It looks really odd, and it's so high up in the sky, it would have to be a massive size. You know, it's not like your normal kite is what I'm saying, that you might go and fly at the beach or wherever. So, yeah, interesting one nonetheless. And like I say, there'll be a link in the show notes, so you can go and check that out if you would like to. Alright, so on to our second one here, and this is also from Trey, so thanks Trey. And this one is something I've actually got a bit of experience with, as I've said. I've mentioned it before here on the show, but, um, you know, I used to work in fisheries, so I've seen this fish, not this big, but I've seen sunfish and moonfish. And this one is from Live Science, and it says 4,400-pound sunfish caught off of North Africa literally tips the scales. So that's about 20, 2150 1, kilos, something like that, for those of you who might be listening that uh, follow the metric system. And it is a big sunfish. So it says, Fishers recently hauled up a surprising catch off the coast of North Africa, a colossal ocean sunfish weighing an incredible 4,400 pounds. At least that's how heavy marine biologists estimated the mammoth fish to be. Based on its girth and the dimensions of sunfish that had previously been captured and weighed. We tried to put it on the 1,000 kilogram or 2,200 pound scale. So sorry folks, it's about two, it's 2,000 kilograms even is what they're thinking it weighs. Uh, but it was too heavy, marine biologist Enrique Ostale told Reuters. It would have broken it. Fishers in Suda, uh, I think it's, uh, never pronounce it right, but I think it's Suda, it's C-E-U-T-A. Um, sure, I'll catch hell. I know someone out there who speaks very good Spanish that will uh, be correcting me if I've got that wrong. A Spanish territory bordering Morocco discovered the animal tangled in their nets in early October. They immediately called in Ostale head of Seville's University's Marine Biology Lab in Suda to examine the massive sunfish. 
After first isolating the creature in an underwater pen attached to the boat, the team briefly hauled the fish into the air, using a crane. Like other ocean sunfish, all of which begin, belong to the genus Mola, the creature resembled an oblong pancake with huge, googly eyes stuck to its sides. Two massive wing-like fins extended from the top and bottom of the fish. In the ocean, sunfish waves wave these fins to and fro to propel their hefty bodies through the water. Once the sunfish had been hoisted on deck, the team measured the animal and determined it to be 10.5 feet, or 3.2 meters long, and 9.5 feet, or 2.9 meters wide. For scale, a king-size bed is only 6.5 feet, long by 6.3 feet, wide. After measuring the sunfish and taking photos and DNA samples, the crew released the animal back into the sea, where it soon disappeared into its watery depths. When we arrived there, the feeling was astonishment, Ostale said in a video interview with Reuters. We couldn't believe our luck because we'd read books and articles about the, about the dimensions that a sunfish can have, but we didn't know we'd ever be able to watch it and touch it ourselves. Based on grooves marking the fish's sides and stumpy clavis, a rudder-like structure on the back of the fish, Ostale and his colleagues identified the animal as a species called Mola alexandrini, also known as a bumphead sunfish, because of the distinctive hump on its noggin. Although adult sunfish rank is the largest bony fish on the planet, scientists recently found M. alexandrini babies that measure just a few millimeters in length, Live Science previously reported. The tiny larvae look nothing like their adult counterparts, but over time they grow to be 600 times their original size and morph into that familiar winged pancake shape. The M. alexandrini Sorry, folks. Uh, the M. Alexandrini captured in Suda set a record as the largest sunfish ever caught in the region, in terms of its dimensions, Reuters reported. But in general, the sunfish species can grow even larger and heavier. To date, the heaviest M. Alex Alexandrini specimen weighed a whopping 5,070 pounds, or 2,300 uh, <laughs> kilograms, not kilometers. Uh, making it the heftiest sunfish specimen ever weighed. It'd be a long sunfish if it was 2,300 kilometers long. So, uh, yeah, interesting one there. And it just goes to show that the oceans are still a very deep and foreboding and unexplored place. That the sayings, it's been said many times, and it's still true to this day, that the moon has been better mapped than the depths of the ocean. So, yeah, it's it's something else. Um, you would look at this liquid, if, if you had never seen it before, you would look at water, like let's say water in a, in a cup or a bowl or a bucket, and you would say, oh, well, that can't be much of a barrier. But it just goes to show how difficult it is to get into the depths of the ocean and see some of these things. So thanks for that, uh, Trey. So I've got one more here from Trey, and this one is from also from Live Science. And this one is, says, uh, I'm sure you all remember the Storm Area 51 stuff, folks. This one says, Siege, Siege of Top Secret Area 51 began as a joke. Officials prepared to use deadly force in response. By Mindy Weisenberger. Law enforcement agencies took the 2019 event very, very seriously. Yeah, I'm not surprised. When a UFO enthusiast posted an event on Facebook about storming the military base, known as Area 51, he meant it as a joke. 
However, it was no laughing matter to federal and state law enforcement, who readied a lethal response to prevent revelers from breaching the off-limits area, reports recently revealed. Area 51, sorry, it says records, not reports. Area 51 is a U.S. Air Force installation in southern Nevada's Groom Lake, a salt flat about 80 miles, or 129 kilometers, northwest of Las Vegas. For decades, the base's remote location and restricted access have fueled speculation about military officials performing secret experiments on extraterrestrials there and storming and storing evidence of alien visitors and UFOs. The general public is barred from visiting Area 51, but during the summer of 2019, a Facebook event titled Storm Area 51, They Can't Stop All of Us, now deleted, enticed nearly 2 million people to sign up for a raid on the base to take place on September 20th. The massive scale of the proposed event raised alarms at local and federal levels, according to government communications that were recently obtained by Rolling Stone. Dozens of law enforcement agencies mobilized and readied responses to the proposed onslaught, including automated, including automated deadly force countermeasures, Rolling Stone reported. Yep. The plan for Storm Area 51, according to the Facebook post, was for attendees to gather in the Nevada desert near Area 51, charge the gates at sunrise, and then once inside, see them aliens, and possibly conduct an extraterrestrial rescue operation. Maddie Roberts, then a 20-year-old college student in Bakersfield, California, created the post on June 27th and claimed it was totally a joke from the get-go. Roberts told the BBC on September the 13th, 2019. Now, usually I'll, I'll wait for the article to be over, but if this had the potential to blow up and, and get serious, of course you're going to claim it was always a joke. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't say, oh, it's just shenanigans, it's just... You know, it's just a bit of fun. It's just kids having fun. Because you don't want to get charged. You don't want to go to prison. And you sure as hell don't want to catch a 50 cal and uh, and be dead. But law enforcement agencies weren't amused. And they prepared accordingly. And say what you want about Area 51. So they should prepare accordingly. Because you don't know how many of those 2 million people were seriously. A certain portion of the participants may be armed and could expect armed conflict read the Nevada Department of Public Safety Investigation Division's operational plan for the Storm Area 51 event. The 2019 document was obtained by the nonpartisan Government Transparency Group, Property of the People, and shared with Rolling Stone. Hundreds of pages detailed law enforcement agencies' plans, situation reports, descriptions of transport for Area 51 employees, and maps of all entrances, Rolling Stone reported. The documents also describe several unnamed YouTubers' attempts to track employees as they entered and left the base, according to Rolling Stone. Even if most of the Storm Area 51 attendees weren't seriously planning to invade a restricted military site, there is a potential for domestic and foreign terrorist groups to utilize this event to test the security of sensitive national security sites by infiltrating the groups planning to storm the facility, the plan read. Harsh conditions in the Nevada desert, the threat of wildfires, lack of water, and extreme temperature fluctuations could worsen an already volatile situation, sowing panic and increasing the possibility of mass casualties, according to the report. In the end, online interest in raiding the base petered out, and Roberts canceled Area 51 with just nine days to spare. As an alternative, he urged people to instead visit Alien Stock, a UFO celebrating festival in Las Vegas. 
Nonetheless, a few thousand people still gathered in the town of Rachel, Nevada, about a 20-minute drive from Area 51's entrance on the appointed day, the Guardian reported on September the 24th, 2019. However, most of the assembled throng were busy documenting their presence for viewers on YouTube and Instagram, and none broke down the gates to find hidden evidence of UFOs, according to the Guardian. Well, yeah, we know that. So, my thoughts on this. First and foremost, I said it at the time when we were leading up to it. If you really were going to be dumb enough to try, they would stop you, okay? And, yeah, of course, they would try non-lethal first. But, like, if they got swamped with people, they would have shot. Uh, try that on any U.S. military base and most countries' military bases around the world, and that's what you'll get. Now, there might be people out there listening going, well, JT, you know, you're always talking about how the government's overreach and, and how we've got a right to this and that. Yeah, I totally agree. But there's a difference between having a feeling that our governments are treating us like children and overstepping their rights and telling people, go and get shot, okay? There's a big, big difference. And if someone is silly enough to go up against the man, so to speak, and especially here, we're not talking about police, folks. We're talking about armed and uh, <laughs> armed and uh, very hostile military entities, meaning if they would have stormed that base, people would have been shot. I've got no doubt. If you had one or two people trying to break in, it'd be different. But if you actually had that whole... Let's storm the base, even with a few thousand people. Yeah, uh, I, I think that it would have ended in tragedy. So I'm glad it didn't. Uh, I am not surprised at all that they took it seriously. And at the very, very least, you do have to dissuade people because there are, you know, I, I talk about this oftentimes about watch the misdirection and the world's not always the way we're taught and and things aren't always the way they seem, but there are bad, bad people out in the world who want to see us suffer. And I don't just mean people in America. I mean anyone in the Western world. And so when you've got a place like Area 51, we don't know what they're testing out there. The last thing you want is some unhinged group getting their hands on any advanced technology. So I can't really blame them in this case. I've got my issues with Area 51, one of them being the way they treated employees after having them pour toxic waste in trenches and burn it, and then when they basically tried to sue to pay for their medical bills for getting cancer, denying that the base existed and everything else, and basically trying to get a presidential order from Bill Clinton to cover it all up. I've got my issues with it, don't get me wrong, but defending a military base on the continental soil of the U.S. from people just being stupid. I mean, yeah, I don't want to see anyone get shot, don't get me wrong. But at the end of the day, if they pushed them that far and they got shot, I wouldn't have a whole lot of pity for them. Gotta use your noggin. I wouldn't be doing it, I'll tell you that. I wouldn't have even signed up for the online group thing, you know, to say, oh, interested. And I definitely didn't do so. Because now, okay, you've clicked on it. You said, oh, I'm interested in doing this. I'm sure the NSA's got a track of all the people who clicked on that. So, um, yeah, just think about it, folks, when you go and do things like this. 
Fly under the radar, my friends. Fly under the radar. So now I got one here, and this one is for all of you, but also for Nico and Adriana in Texas. This one has got to do with one of your favorite cryptids. So this is from Mysterious Universe, and this is from November the 19th, and it was written by Nick Redfern. For those of you who don't know, Nick Redfern has written a lot of books on different cryptids and UFO cases and the like. He's a very prolific writer. And this one is titled Chupacabra, High Strangeness, When the Creatures Change Their Forms. So it says here, sorry folks, having a bit of trouble with the scrolling. In August 1995, the Canovanas region of the island of Puerto Rico was hit by a spate of very bizarre attacks of farm animals on farm animals. The unfortunate creatures, typically goat, chickens, and pigs, were found dead with deep puncture wounds to their necks amid claims that significant amounts of blood were missing from their corpses. Farmers were on edge, the media had an absolute field day, and the people of Puerto Rico were plunged into states that ranged from fear to hysteria. When similar killings began to re be reported in numerous other parts of Puerto Rico, that fear was amplified to even greater levels, all of which is hardly surprising. When one takes into consideration the physical appearance of the beast, that was believed to be behind all of the slaughtering. The first person, so far as we know, to see the beast was a woman named Madeline Tolentino, who lived in Cano, uh, Canovanas, the initial scene of all the action, and whose story is told in Ben Radford's 2011 book, Tracking the Chupacabra. She described it as a fairly compact animal that ran on two legs, in a strange hopping style, and which had what looked like a row of feathers running down the back of its head and spine. As media interest grew and grew, so did sightings of the mysterious monster. But that's when things became not just interesting, but beyond interesting. There's a very good reason for that. Not everyone saw the same beast that Tolentino encountered, or at least it did not look the same. It is one thing to suggest that, in the 1990s, one unknown and dangerous animal was on the loose in Puerto Rico. It is quite another, however, to suggest that multiple strange creatures were running wild on the island unless all of the reports were of the same monster. But given their physical differences, how could that be? Very easily. That is how if the chupacabra is a shapeshifter. Sorry, I, <laughs> I got a bit of cadence wrong there. Very easily. That is how if the chupacabra is a shapeshifter. As amazing as it may sound, a significant amount of data points in that specific direction. Although the first sightings of the creature in the summer of 1995 effectively dictated how the locals perceived the animal to look, not everyone reported something that resembled the monster seen by Madeline Tolentino, as we shall now see. In the days, weeks, months, and even years that followed, countless reports of chupacabra attacks on farm animals were reported. The problem, however, is that the descriptions of the beast varied to incredible degrees. In some cases, witnesses told of seeing an animal that did not have the feathery line running along the back of its neck, head, and spine, as described by Tolentino. Instead, they saw a row of menacing-looking spikes, which stood erect and around four to five inches in length. And of course, it would be very hard to mistake a line of feathers for a row of vicious spikes. Then there was the matter of how the animal ran. According to both Tolentino and the majority of early witnesses, it was a bipedal beast, albeit one which bounced along in a bizarre, hopping fashion. Others, however, were sure that the creatures they saw ran on four limbs only. 
and there was nothing bizarre about its movements. They were likened to the way in which a large cat, such as a mountain lion, would stalk its prey. Now let us talk to now let's let us take a look at the eyes of the chupacabra. Some sightings involve creatures with bright blue eyes. In other cases, the eyes were a piercing, devilish red and glowing variety. The most significant factor, however, was the matter of the wings of the chupacabra. Yes, that is correct. Wings. In some cases, but most certainly not all, the creatures were said to have had large and powerful-looking bat-like wings. In other words, they were black and leathery-looking. When faced with such stories, other witnesses swore that monsters had absolutely no wings at all. Adding to the puzzle is the fact that on my second expedition to seek out the Puerto Rican chupacabra, I spoke with a man named Pucho who saw such a thing, but which had wings like those of a large bird. They were feathery. Most controversial of all are the reports of the chupacabra transforming into a large and lumbering Bigfoot. I should stress that such reports are rare and few and far between. However, I do have 11 such reports in my files. In all the cases, the witnesses saw the chupacabra engulfed by a near-blinding white light and then mutating into a large, hair-covered humanoid before, the, before their startled eyes. When we pull all of the information together, we are clearly faced with a major-sized conundrum. How can one creature take on multiple appearances and forms? Well, the answer is that no normal animal can do such a thing. But there's nothing normal about the chupacabra. Rather, everything suggests that it is undeniably abnormal. On all of my many trips to Puerto Rico, I have heard several often repeated stories for what the beasts are or may be. The list includes alien beings, giant bats, and the products of secret labs run by scientists engaged in bizarre genetic cloning and gene-splicing experiments. And there is one more theory, that the chupacabras were invoked or conjured up by clandestine groups that engage in the black arts, and who are directly responsible for creating a portal, or what we might call a supernatural doorway. That lets the monsters enter our world at will. There's no doubt that all that Puerto Rico is home to multiple cults and secret societies that engage in animal sacrifice, ritual magic, and occult practices. I know that, as I had the opportunity to speak with a few of them. They are dangerous and powerful bodies, ones not to be crossed with. The most likely scenario to explain the nature and presence of the Puerto Rican chupacabra, however, is that it is the shape-shifting denizen of another realm of existence. It is a monster that, when called forth, eagerly made a new home, as well as an, an entirely new hunting ground on the island, and has no intention of returning to the weird realm from which it surfaced. So, that's a little bit of a different style, and Mysterious Universe has these, they're more kind of op- pieces or opinion pieces but um i like nick bridford he does some pretty good work and uh it is quite interesting i've never been to puerto rico but um yeah it is quite interesting and i do think there's something phenomenal going on with chupacabras because as they say there seems to be so many varieties of them now and over time, different locations like in Mexico, southern U.S., Texas, there's supposed to be quite a few different kinds. But when you've got the initial reports, it is odd that you had these really different looking creatures sighted by people in the same general region. Really interesting one, folks. Okay, so the next one here is a really interesting one to me. 
uh, for a few reasons I can't really tell you about, just because they'll be in upcoming episodes, and I don't want to spoil it for you. But it is quite interesting, this one. And this is from coasttocoastam.com. And this one says, UFO abducts woman in Argentina and returns her 40 miles away. And it's by Tim Banal, as they always are on Coast to Coast. So what Tim does is he goes and he gets these articles and he basically summarizes them. So it's a nice little two or three paragraph blurb instead of maybe being a really in-depth article. And there's a link in the in there's a link in his story to the original report. So it says in a bizarre story out of Argentina, a missing woman was found 40 miles from where she had last been seen and told authorities that her puzzling disappearance was precipitated by the sighting of a mysterious white light that some suspect could have been a UFO. According to a local media report, the very curious case began on Monday morning in the town of uh, Cuatro Esquinas. Yeah, Cuatro Esquinas. It's because they've spelled Cuatro with a C. You see, it's thrown me off. When the unnamed woman at the center of the odd account was reported missing. After a lengthy search, police wound up zeroing in on an area where they subsequently found the disoriented woman the following day, and she had quite the story to tell. Unable to speak as a result of the puzzling incident, she wrote a message explaining she had gone out to her patio after hearing a strange noise emanating from her yard and then spotted an inexplicable white light. Amazingly, the woman claims that a few hours later, she woke up 40 miles away on the side of a road in a community wherein authorities ultimately found her. They knew to look for her there because upon her reappearance, the woman made several odd cell phone calls to her friends and family, wherein she said nothing, but they could hear a peculiar buzzing sound. The witness has since regained her ability to speak and, and is recovering in a nearby hospital, though she has apparently not provided any additional details on her disappearance. Adding a layer of intrigue to the case, a witness has come forward, saying that they spotted an inordinately bright light coming from a seemingly out-of-place object in the sky over the general vicinity of where the disappearance had unfolded, but the sighting appears to have taken place several hours after the woman had purportedly reappeared. As one might imagine, the weird account has piqued the interest of UFO researchers in Argentina, specifically Oscar uh, Quinche Mario, who has stressed that he is not jumping to conclusions about the matter. That said, he also noted that the woman nor her clothes appeared to be no worse for wear from their 40-mile journey, suggesting that she did not walk. So yeah, interesting one, folks, and there are articles like this every day all over the world. It is a very interesting phenomenon. I don't have all the answers. We will get around to covering it more in depth. Obviously, the Barney and Betty White story is about that. And uh, we'll just keep digging into it as the season unfolds. Rightio. So the next one here is also from Coast to Coast. Now, this this one was a good Halloween one, but hey, it's it's still a good one. Dead man comes back to life after spending night in a mortuary freezer. An Indian man who had been declared dead following a gruesome accident stunned doctors and his grieving family members when he suddenly came back to life after spending a staggering seven hours in a mortuary freezer. According to a local media report, the astounding tale began late last Thursday evening when Shrikesh Kumar was struck by a motorcycle in the city of uh, Moradabad. 
When the unfortunate man was taken to a local hospital, doctors determined he had died due to injuries from the collision as he showed no signs of life. Kumar's body was subsequently placed in a mortuary freezer overnight ahead of a post-mortem examination the following day, which is when things took a surprising turn. The next morning, as the man's heartbroken family were preparing to complete the necessary paperwork for an autopsy to be performed, his sister-in-law stopped in her tracks when she saw his body moving. He's not at all dead. In fact, far from it. How did this happen, she explained. Look, he wants to say something. He's breathing. Kumar's other loved ones, as well as doctors and police on site, quickly ran over to look, and indeed, the dead man was quite alive. Medical personnel promptly removed him from the chilly setting and transported him to a unit where he is currently being treated for injuries sustained in the accident. As for how the mix-up could have happened, the head of the hospital indicated that Kumar had been examined several times by doctors that evening and was ultimately declared dead because they could not detect a pulse. Calling it an extraordinary situation, he theorized that the accident victim could have entered into a state of suspended animation, which led to the grave misdiagnosis. Meanwhile, one unnamed worker at the hospital theorized that Kumar's revival might have been miraculous as the freezer holding his body had flipped on and off throughout the night, which he believes may have somehow brought the man back to life. So, yeah, interesting one there. And um, I do hope, folks, if I'm ever in the same position, I have the same outcome. Uh, I I think it would be great if I ended up waking up out of the freezer um, after seven hours being alive. Yeah, so interesting one there. And some good news, especially for his family. Okay, so the next one here, folks. We've got a few here about archaeology and history, because you know I love that. And this first one is... A bit about religion, so I'm just forewarning you, because I've talked about not going into religion because it being divisive. This one is from the Smithsonian Magazine. So all those people out there who are saying, but JT, you've talked about this before, and other people have talked about the Smithsonian doing things like destroying artifacts and that. Hey, if I see an interesting story, as long as it's not from the onion, okay, and I believe that it's legit, I'll cover it. So this is from, uh, this one says, An archaeological dig reignites the debate over the Old Testament's historical accuracy. Beneath a desert in Israel, a scholar and his team are unearthing astonishing new evidence of an advanced society in the time of the biblical Solomon. And this is by Maddie Friedman. If you stand on one of the outcroppings of the Timna Valley, the most salient fact of the place is its emptiness. Here in the heat-blasted flatlands of the Arava Desert, off a lonely road in southern Israel, it seemed like it seems there's nothing but stark cliffs and rock formations all the way to the jagged red wall of the Edomite Mountains across the Jordanian border. And yet the longer you spend in the Timna Barrens, the more human fingerprints you begin to see. Scratches on a cliff face turn out to be, on closer investigation, 3,200-year-old hieroglyphics. On a boulder are the outlines of ghostly chariots. A tunnel vanishes into a hillside, the walls marked with energetic spikes, strikes of bronze chisels. There were once people here, and they were looking for something. Traces of the treasure can still be seen beneath your feet, in the greenish hue of pebbles, where the emeralds streak across the side of a cave. When the Israeli archaeologist Erez ben Yosef arrived in the ancient copper mines of Timna in 2009, he was 30 years old. The site wasn't on Israel's archaeological A-list or even its B-list, 
It wasn't the Jerusalem of Jesus or the famous citadel of Masada, where Jewish rebels committed suicide rather than surrender to Rome. It was the kind of place unimportant enough to be entrusted to someone with fresh credentials and no experience leading a dig. At the time, Ben Yosef wasn't interested in the Bible. His field was paleomagnetism, the investigation of changes in the Earth's magnetic field, over time, and specifically the mysterious spike of the 10th century BC, when magnetism leapt higher than at any time in history for reasons that are not entirely understood. With that in mind, Ben Yosef and his colleagues from the University of California, San Diego, unpacked their shovels and brushes at the foot of a limestone cliff, sorry, sandstone cliff, and started digging. They began to extract pieces of organic material, charcoal, a few seeds, 11 items all told, and dispatched them to a lab at Oxford University for carbon-14 dating. They didn't expect any surprises. The site had already been conclusively dated by an earlier expedition that had uncovered the ruins of a temple dedicated to an Egyptian goddess, linking the site to the empire of the pharaohs, the great power to the south. This conclusion was so firmly established that the local tourist board, in an attempt to draw visitors to this remote location, had put up kitschy statues and walk-like-an-Egyptian poses. But when Ben Yosef got the results back from Oxford, they showed something else, and so began the latest revolution in the story of Timnah. The ongoing excavation is now one of the most fascinating in a country renowned for its archaeology. Far from any city, ancient or modern, Timnah is illuminating the time of the Hebrew Bible and showing just how much can be found in a place that it seems at first glance like nowhere. On the afternoon of March 30, 1934, a dozen men stopped their camels and camped in the Ara Arava Desert. At the time, the country was ruled by the British. The leader of the expedition was Nelson Gluck, an archaeologist from Cincinnati, Ohio, later renowned as a man of both science and religion. In the 1960s, he would be on the cover of Time magazine and, as a rabbi, deliver the benediction at JFK's inauguration. Gluck's expedition had been riding for 11 days, surveying the waste between the Dead Sea and the Gulf of Aqaba. Gluck's guide was a local Bedouin chief, Shriek Adu Ibn Jad, who struck the American archaeologist as a nearly biblical figure, in name which reflects that of the tribe of Gad, and in appearance, he could have been one of the Israelite chieftains who had journeyed with Moses and the children of Israel, Gluck wrote in his book about the adventure, Rivers in the Desert. The group slept on the ground, covered in their robes, and, un and ate unleavened bread, liking Israelites, like Israelites fleeing Egypt. Strewn about were piles of black slag, fist-sized chunks left over from extracting copper from ore in furnaces. The site, Gluck wrote in his original report from 1935, was no less than the largest and richest copper mining and smelting center in the entire Arabah. It had been abandoned for millennia, but for Gluck it sprang to life. An expert on ancient pottery, Gluck picked up shards that were laying around and dated them back 3,000 years, to one of the most storied points of biblical history, the time of Solomon, King David's son, renowned for his wealth and wisdom. According to the Hebrew Bible, Solomon's kingdom stretched from Syria in the north to the Red Sea in the south uniting the fractious Israelite tribes and serving as the high-water mark of Jewish power in the ancient world. And if the archaeologist's dating of the shards was correct, he knew exactly where he was standing, King Solomon's Mines. If that phrase gives you a jolt of excitement, as we can presume it did Gluck, 
It is because the British writer H. Ryder Haggard, whose 1885 novel King Solomon's Mines was a sensation. The book is set not in the Holy Land, but in the fictional African kingdom of <laughs> Kukuanana Land. The protagonist is the adventurer Alan Quartermain, whose search for the mines leads him to the African interior and into a cathedral-sized cavern, where he finds a trove of diamonds as large as eggs and gold ingots stamped with Hebrew letters. After much peril, including a near-drowning in a subterranean river, Quartermain lives to tell the tale. The colonialist, uh, yeah, the colonialist politics and ethnic stereotypes of King Solomon's Mines wouldn't cut it today, but the story entranced generations of readers and was eventually adapted for the screen no more than no fewer than five times, from a 1919 silent version to a 2004 TV miniseries with Patrick Swayze. I remember the one from the 50s or the 60s. For kids of the 80s like me, the memorable version is from 1985, with the newly minted star Sharon Stone in the role of the expedition's blonde and breathy damsel in distress, wearing a cocky outfit whose designer seemed oddly unconcerned with protecting her from scratches or malarial mosquitoes. There was also a guy who played Quartermain, but for some reason he made less of an impression. Funnily enough, I don't remember that one, but the one from the 50s or 60s, that's the one I was really into. In the Bible, King Solomon is said to have been rich in precious metals, and to have used vast quantities of copper for features of his Jerusalem temple, such as the Molten Sea, a giant basin that rested on the backs of twelve metal oxen. But the phrase King Solomon's Mines actually appears nowhere in the Bible. It was coined by the novelist. Gluck, like many archaeologists then and now, had a bit of the novelist in him, which might be necessary in a profession that requires you to imagine a majestic temple based on what a normal observer would swear was just a pile of rocks. He knew that most people are attracted less to ruins than to the stories we tell about them, whether about ancient Rome or Machu Picchu. In the Holy Land, interest in archaeology is especially intense because so many of our most potent stories are set here. The biblical chronicles describe numerous battles between the polity that ruled the area, the kingdom of Edom, and the Israelites who lived to the north. Gluck theorized that the captives from those wars were sent to these mines. One natural acropolis with the remains of a wall gave him the impression of being also a prison camp, where the drafted laborers were forcibly retained. He called the outcropping Slaves Hill, a name it retains to this day. They've got some really good photos in this article as well, folks. And that's what the uh, pauses are for as I'm just scrolling down. Proving or disproving the Bible, Gluck said, was a fool's errand. And I agree with that. Those people are essentially of little faith who seek through archaeological corroboration of historical source materials in the Bible to validate its religious teachings and spiritual insights, he wrote in Rivers in the Desert, and he probably should have left it there. Instead, he continued, As a matter of fact, however, it may be categorically stated that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Yeah, he definitely should have stopped there. In other words, archaeology didn't have to prove the Bible's account of history, but it did prove it, or at least never disproved it, and he himself, he wrote with pride, had discovered Solomon's copper mines. The identification stuck for 30 years, until Benno Rothenberg, who, who once had been Gluck's assistant and photographer, returned in the 1950s at the head of his own archaeological expedition. A generation had passed, but enthusiastic biblical literism was still the rule. In those days, the famous Israeli archaeologist and military hero Yigal Yadin was uncovering what he identified as Solomon's imperial construction works 
at ancient cities like Gezer and Hatzor. Proving, Yadin said, the existence of the United Israeli Monarchy, known from the Bible and dated to around 1000 BC. But fashions were beginning to change. While Gluck had identified black slag left over from copper smelting, as had the Welsh explorer John Petherick nearly a century before him, it was Rothenberg who found the actual copper mines, warrants of twisting galleries, and some 9,000 vertical shafts sunk into the ground, visible from the air like polka dots. The ancient miners toiled underground to harvest the greenish ore from rich veins around the edge of the valley, chiseling it from the rock and hauling it to the surface. At the mouth of the shaft, workers loaded the ore onto donkeys or their own backs and bore it to the charcoal-burning furnaces. Knee-high clay urns attached to bellows that sent up plumes of smoke from the center of the mining complex. When the smelters smashed the furnace and the molten slag flowed out, what remained were precious lumps of copper. In 1969, Rothenberg and his crew began to excavate near a towering rock formation known as Solomon's Pillars. Ironic because the structure they uncovered ended up destroying the site's extensive connection to the biblical king. Here they found an Egyptian temple, complete with hieroglyphic inscriptions, a text from the Book of the Dead, cat figurines, and a carved face of Hathor, the Egyptian goddess, with dark rimmed eyes and a mysterious half-smile. Not only did the temple have nothing to do with King Solomon, or Israelites, it predated Solomon's kingdom by centuries, assuming such a kingdom ever existed. If you were a rising young archaeologist in the 1970s, you were skeptical of stories about Jewish kings. The Ascendant Critical School in Biblical Scholarship, sometimes known by the general name Minimalism, was making a strong case that there was no united Israeli monarchy around 1000 BC. This was a fiction composed by writers working under Judean kings, perhaps three centuries later. The new generation of archaeologists argued that the Israelites of 1000 BC were little more than Bedouin tribes, and David and Solomon, if there were such a people, weren't more than local sheiks. This was part of a more general movement in archaeology worldwide, away from romantic stories and toward a more technical approach that sought to look dispassionately at physical remains. In biblical archaeology, the best-known expression of this school's thinking for a general audience is probably The Bible Unearthed, a 2001 book by the Israeli archaeologist Israel Finkelstein of Tel Aviv University and the American scholar Neil Asher Silberman. Archaeology, the writers wrote, was... Archaeology, the writers wrote, has produced a stunning, almost encyclopedic knowledge of the material conditions, languages, societies, and historical developments of the centuries during which the traditions of ancient Israel gradually crystallized. Armed with this interpretive power, archaeologists could now scientifically evaluate the truth of biblical stories. An organized kingdom such as David's and Solomon's would have left significant settlements and buildings, but in Judea at the relevant time, the authors wrote there were no such buildings at all, or any evidence of writing. In fact, most of the saga contained in the Bible, including stories about the glorious empire of David and Solomon was less a historical chronicle than a brilliant product of the human imagination. At Timnah, then, there would be no more talk of Solomon. The real minds were reinterpreted as an Egyptian enterprise, perhaps the one mentioned in a papyrus describing the reign of Ramesses III in the 12th century BC. I sent forth my messengers to the country of Attica, to the great copper mines which are in this place, the pharaoh says, describing a pile of ingots he had placed 
under a balcony to be viewed by the people, like wonders. The new theory held that the mines were shut down after Egypt's empire collapsed in the civilization cataclysm that hit the ancient world in the 12th century BC, perhaps because of a devastating drought. This was the same crisis that saw the end of the Hittite Empire, the famed fall of Troy, and the destruction of kingdoms in Cyprus and throughout modern-day Greece. Accordingly, the mines weren't even active at the time Solomon was said to exist. Mining resumed only a millennia later, after the rise of Rome. There is no factual and, as a matter of fact, no ancient written literary evidence of the existence of King Solomon's mines, Rothenberg wrote. That was the story of Timna when, Ez, when Erez ben Yosef showed up in 2009. He had spent the previous few years excavating at another copper mine in Fainan on the other side of the Jordanian border at a dig run by the University of California, San Diego and Jordan's Department of Antiquities. Ben Yosef, 43, now teaches at Tel Aviv University. He speaks quietly with the air of a careful observer. One of our meetings took place shortly after he'd returned from a med meditation retreat at which he said nothing for 10 days. He has no religious affiliation and describes himself as indifferent to the historical accuracy of the Bible. He didn't come here to prove a point, but to listen to what the place could tell him. The mere interaction with remains left by people who lived long ago teaches us about who we are as humans and about the essence of the human experience, he told me. It's like reading a work of literature or a book of poetry. It's not just about what happened in 900 BC. The dig quickly took an unexpected turn. Having assumed they were working at an Egyptian site, Ben Yosef and his team were taken aback by the carbon dating results of their first example, of their first samples, around 1000 BC. The next batches came back with the same date. At that time, the Egyptians were long gone, and the mine was supposed to be defunct. And it was the time of David and Solomon, according to the biblical chronology. For a moment, we thought there might be a mistake in the carbon dating, Ben Yosef recalled, but then we began to see that there was a different story here than the one we knew. Accommodating himself to the same considerations that would have guided the ancient mining schedule, Ben Yosef comes to dig with his team in the winter, when the scorching heat subsides. The team includes scientists trying to understand the ancient metallurgical arts employed here and others analyzing what the workers ate and wore. They're helped by the remarkable preservation of organic materials in the dry heat, such as dates, shriveled but intact, about 3,000 years after they were picked. That's insane. 3,000 years, folks. Don't think there'll be much of me left in 3,000 years. When I visited the mines, Diana Medellin, an archaeological conservator, was conducting soil tests to determine how fabric deteriorates in the ground over time. Back at the labs in Tel Aviv, another scholar was analyzing chunks of the charcoal used to fuel the smelting furnaces, trying to trace the depletion of local trees, acacia, and white broom, which forced the smelters to bring in wood from further away. A few years ago, the team produced one of those rare archaeology stories that migrates into pop culture. The bones of domesticated camels they found appear in the layers at Timna only after 930 BC, suggesting that the animals were first introduced in the region at that time. The Bible, however, describes camels many centuries earlier, earlier in the time of the patriarchs, possibly an anachronism inserted by authors working much later. The story was picked up by Gawker. The whole Bible thing is BS because of camel bones, says science. Yeah, always love those misleading stories. Doesn't necessarily mean that. Anyway, 
and made it into the CS CBS sitcom The Big Band Theory when Sheldon, a scientist, considers using the finding to challenge his mother's Christian faith. In the past decade, Ben Yosef and his team have rewritten the site's biography. They say a mining expedition from Egypt was indeed here first, which explains the hieroglyphics and the temple. But the mines actually became most active after the Egyptians left, during a power vacuum created by the collapse of the regional empires. A power vacuum is good for scrappy local players, and it's precisely in this period that the Bible places Solomon's united Israelite monarchy, and crucially, its neighbor to the south, Edom. The elusive Edomites dominated the reddish mountains and the plateaus around the mines. In Hebrew and other Semitic languages, their name literally means red. Not much is known about them. They first appear in a few ancient Egyptian records that characterize them, according to the scholar John Bartlett in his authoritative 1989 work Edom and the Edomites as bellicose by nature, but also as tent dwellers, with cattle and other possessions, able to travel to Egypt when necessity arose. They seem to have been herdsmen, farmers, and raiders. Unfortunately for the Edomites, most of what we do know comes from the texts composed by, by their rivals, the Israelites, who saw them as symbols of treachery, if also as blood relations. The father of the Edomites, the Bible records, was no less than the red-headed Esau, the twin brother of the Hebrew patriarch Jacob, later renamed Israel. With the Egyptian empire out of the picture by 1000 BC, and no record of Israelite activity nearby, the most logical candidate for the society that operated the mines is Edom, says Ben Yosef. But archaeologists had found so few ruins that many doubted the example of any kingdom here at, that, at the time in question. There were no fortified cities, no palaces, not even anything that could be called a town. The Edom of Solomon's time, many suspected, was another fiction dreamed up by later authors. But the dig at the, Fan at, at the Fainan copper mines, which were also active around 1000 BC, was already producing evidence for an organized Edomite kingdom. So, yeah, folks, it is still a bit longer, so I'm just going to kind of sum up for you. So they basically say that archaeologists found the bones of fish from the Mediterranean, a trek of more than 100 miles across the desert. Skilled craftsmen at the furnaces got better food than the, than the menial workers toiling in the mine shafts. Delicies, delicacies such as pistachios, lentils, almonds, and grapes, all of which were hauled in from afar. A key discovery emerged in a Jerusalem lab run by Namek Sukinik, an expert in organic materials with the, 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 with the Egyptian, uh, with the Israeli Antiquities Authority. An excavator sifted through the slag heaps at Timna, set their tiny red and blue textile fragments. Sukhanik and her colleagues thought the the quality of the weave and dye suggested Roman or, or aristocracy, but carbon-14 dating placed these fragments to around 1000 BC, when Rome was a mere village. Okay. So yeah, it, look, it's an interesting article here, and it just goes to show, my friends, more pieces of the puzzle appeared in the form of copper artifacts from seemingly unrelated digs elsewhere in the Temple of Zeus at Olympia, Greece. In a 2016 analysis of three-legged cauldrons revealed the metal came from the mines in the Arava Desert, 900 miles away. And an Israeli study published this year found that several statuettes from Egyptian palaces and temples from the same period, such as a small structure sculpture of, of a pharaoh, 
unearthed in a burial complex at Tanis were also made from Arava copper. The Edomites were shipping their product across the ancient world. Looking, looking at the materials and data he was collecting, Ben Yosef faced what he might call the, Tilma, the, the Timna Dilemma. What the archaeologists had found was striking, but perhaps more striking was what no one had found. A town, a palace, a cemetery, or homes of any kind. Alright, so, yeah. Picture of that statue of the pharaoh. That's interesting. I didn't realize that they made statues like that out of pure copper. Um, okay, so I'm going to do my best to sum it up here for you. Ben Yosef wondered why nomads 3,000 years ago would necessarily have been the same as modern Bedouin. There were other models for a nomadic society, such as the Mongols, who were organized and disciplined enough to conquer much of the known world. Perhaps the Edomites, Ben Yosef speculated, simply moved around with the seasons, preferring tents to permanent homes and rendering themselves archaeologically invisible. Invisible, that is, but for one fluke. Their kingdom happened to be sitting on a copper deposit. If they hadn't run a mine, leaving traces of debris in the shafts and slag heaps, we'd have no physical evidence that they existed. Their mining operation in Ben Yosef's interpretation reveals the workings of an advanced society, despite the absence of permanent structures. That's a significant conclusion in itself, but it becomes even more significant in biblical archaeology, because if that's true of Edom, it can also be true of the United Monarchy of Israel. Biblical skeptics point out that there are no significant structures corresponding to the time in question, but one plausible explanation could be that most Israelites simply lived in tents because they were a nation of nomads. In fact, that is how the Bible describes them, as a tribal alliance moving out of the desert and into the land of Canaan, settling down over time. This is something obscured in biblical translations. In the book of Kings, for example, after the Israelites celebrated Solomon's dedication of the Jerusalem temple, some English versions record that they went to their homes, joyful and glad. What the Hebrew actually says is they went to their tents. These Israelites could have been wealthy, organized, and semi-nomadic, like the invisible Edomites. Finding nothing, in other words, didn't mean there was nothing. Archaeology was simply not going to be able to find out. So yeah, folks, I'll leave the rest of it there for you, but it is an interesting little article about, basically, what could have been, potentially, in some people's minds, King Solomon's mind. minds. Um, yeah. It is one of those lost treasures that's always fascinated me. Um, I do realize that it is probably not a physical location like in those movies and in the book, but it is interesting nonetheless. Okay, so we just got a couple more to go here, folks. So the first one is another one uh, about treasure. And this is from the Vintage News. And this one says, Hoard of Roman-era silver coins discovered in Germany. And this is from November the 19th, and it was written by Claire Fitzgerald. And there's a photo of these, what looks like hundreds of Roman coins on a table. Yeah, a hoard of more than 5,500 silver coins dating back 1,800 years to the Roman era have been uncovered along a river in, in Augsburg, Germany. The coins are said to have originated during the reign of three high-profile emperors. In an email to Live Science, Stefan Krimnik, a professor of uh, ancient numismatics, said the coins are made from denarii, the standard silver denomination, during the first to early 3rd century AD. 
The total weight of the find is approximately 33 pounds, making it the largest hoard of Roman silver ever discovered in Bavaria. So for those of you that don't know, Bavaria is in southern Germany. Ancient Origins reports, The coins were found earlier this year during the excavation of a site near what was once the earliest ancient Roman base in Bavaria. Sebastian Gerholz, director of the Archaeological Service of the city of Augsburg, said it's likely they weren't buried at the location in which they were found and likely moved along an old Wehrmacht, uh, sorry, Wehrtok River during a flood event. We have just started cleaning and studying the material, Krimnik added in his email to Live Science. The youngest coin of the hoard was minted at the beginning of the 3rd century AD, thus dating the deposition of the hoard in the early 3rd century. We currently hypothesize that the hoard was buried in the 3rd century outside the Roman city of Augusta Vindelicum, near the Via Claudia Augusta, a Roman road that was running through there. The site, located approximately 40 miles northwest of Munich, started out as a Roman military camp, but during the rule of Emperor Augustus, between 8 and 5 BCE, it later grew into the town of Augusta Vindelicum, which then became the capital city of the Roman province of Raetia. The oldest coins appear to have been minted during the reign of Emperor Nero, who reigned from 54 to 68 AD, and the most recent date back to Septimus Severus, who ruled from 193 to 211 AD. There are also coins from the time of, D of Didius Julianus, who was in power for just two months before he was killed in 193 AD. Augsburg's rich history has now become even richer, says Mayor Eva Weber in a statement. Once again, the importance of Augsburg becomes abundantly clear as early as Roman times. At present, the archaeologists involved in the excavation are looking to solve the mystery as to why the coins were buried in the first place. We do not know why the hoard was deposited, says Krimnek, adding that Leo Bray, a doctoral candidate from the University of uh, tu, uh, Tübingen, has been linked with uncovering the answer. The city of Augsburg is planning a temporary exhibition of the hoard, along with other discoveries from the ancient Roman era, between December 17, 2021 and January 9, 2022. Yeah, so another interesting one, folks, and just one of those things, it just goes to show how steeped in history Europe is. Now, for those of you that don't know a whole lot about the Roman Empire, the Romans didn't get very far into Germany. Uh, they started trading and building up cities and trading posts in the area. But there was the very famous battle of the, uh, I think it was the Teutonberg Forest in around 8 or 9 AD. And that was pretty much they got defeated by Germanicus, who was a tribesman from Germany. And the way that it used to work in the old days with Rome, because they were very intelligent, when a tribe agreed to basically be under Roman control, especially powerful tribes, the Romans would take the oldest son of the king or the ruler of that tribe to Rome. And they said it was to train them in Roman ways, but the reality was that it was more a bargaining chip and a hostage so that if the, the tribe did revolt, they could just kill the son or threaten to kill the son if they didn't calm down. So it was a very effective tactic. It, but the, the problem with uh, this one was that it backfired because he basically learned all about uh, Roman military techniques and he knew where they were strong and weak and he basically went back uh, to Germany with the legions 
acting as though he was a loyal Roman. And in the meanwhile, he set up some set, sub, subterfuge, set up some people to join him, and then basically led the Romans into an ambush. And uh, there's a very famous uh, purported story. Uh, it was Varus was the leader of the of the legions. And the thing about Varus was he wasn't actually a military man. He was more of a logistical uh logistical genius than an actual military commander and there's a story that after after the legion got wiped out that um the emperor was seen wandering around at night in rome through the halls of the imperial palace saying varus give me back my legions so um yeah really really interesting story there and again it just goes to show the the depth of history in europe and one day I definitely want to get there. That's on my bucket list, especially Germany. That's one of the places where my ancestry comes from. So I want to get there at some time and check it out. So yeah, interesting one there. And then we've got one more that's kind of about treasure in a way. But it's an interesting story nonetheless. And I know there are people out there that really like the thoughts of uh, what's out there in the universe. Are we alone? I mean, of course I do too, but I mean, it, it is something that most people are at least interested in. How would it change things if we found out we weren't alone? Now, as for yours truly, I've got no doubts that there's something out there. I just think it is the height of human hubris and arrogance to think that we're the only intelligent beings in the universe. I just don't see it. The only way that I could potentially see it is if, number one, we were living in a simulation or number two, if basically everyone else was as stupid as we are as a as a species and got to a point where they wiped themselves out, which is also known as the Great Bottleneck. And you can look that up if you want to know more about the Great Bottleneck. But basically the idea is why we don't see more intelligent species is because there's a point that it's so difficult to get through that very few, if any, species out there survive. And it's been argued for a while now that uh, the use of nuclear and thermonuclear weapons by us um, is that great bottleneck or potentially one of the great bottlenecks that could basically uh, end, end up with the end of mankind if we're not careful, which I think we can all agree with. So this one says, and it's from Mysterious Universe, and it's written by Paul Seaburn, and it says, A new study looks for ancient alien space trash. Archaeologists know the place to find the best stuff at an ancient dig site is wherever the people who live there dumped their trash. Police looking for evidence know the best place to look for it is in the trash. If this is such a good way to solve a mystery, why aren't astronomers looking through the trash to find evidence of extraterrestrials visiting Earth? Before we answer that, ask yourself this question. Where would aliens toss their trash? If your answer was someplace on the surface of our planet, move to the back of the line and try again. In a preprint study, Stockholm University astrophysicist Beatriz uh, Villarreal and her international team assume extraterrestrials think like humans and would send probes to other planets to research them before sending landing parties, just as Mars has many probes from Earth in its orbit and other planets have a few. Earth could conceivably be circled by alien probes, possibly too small to see, to see or perhaps, 
or perhaps they are disguised. Sorry, it's just the way it's written. Harvard astronomer Avi Loeb suggests interstellar comet Oumuamua could be an alien probe. Those probes, like ours, would eventually stop working and become junk. The big challenge is looking at the tens of thousands of pieces of space junk orbiting Earth and eliminating anything that's not alien trash. Sounds impossible. It's actually easier than you may think, and you can be a part of the project. How simple and elegant. Compare old photographs of the sky. Sorry, <laughs> there's there's a, a, a bit of text here that I thought had to do with the photo, but it's part of the article, so sorry. We show that even the small pieces of reflective debris in orbit around Earth can be identified through searches for mutual or sorry multiple transients and old photographic plate material exposed before the launch of first human satellites in 1957. How simple and elegant. Compare old photographs of the sky with current ones and eliminate the new stuff with the help of artificial intelligence developed by Villarreal and her team. Wait a minute. Couldn't all that stuff be moved acro moving across the sky? Good question. The team assumes spacefaring civilizations would think like us and put their probes in geosynchronous Earth orbits, like our communication satellites, so they would always remain over the same spot on the surface. In addition, dead probes that disintegrate into debris could stay for millions of years in the same GEO spot. At higher or GEO altitudes, the presence of satellites or space debris can be, de can be detected by fast, transient glints caused by the reflection of the sun. One of those glints just might be alien space junk, and there's already an operational project whose purpose is to look for fading glints that are signs of vanishing stars. The Vasco Citizen Science Project uses astronom astronomical surveys from the past 70 years. That includes the period before 1959 when Sputnik became the first human-made object in space. Anything with a telltale glint in the sky prior to 1959 just might be alien trash. Villarreal suggests opening the Vasco project to space trash collectors. The Vasco website gives information on how citizens, that's you, can join the search for transient glints and possibly be the first person to discover a piece of alien trash. In the meantime, the transient glints would be a great name for a band. I agree. And, uh, and when they say alien trash, folks, they don't mean trailer trash from Zeta Reticuli. They mean discarded alien satellites or probes, things like that. So um, I, I do find that really interesting, and it just dovetails into that whole story that we've covered about the Black Knight satellite. And I think things like that are just, to me, it's just mind-boggling and it's fascinating. But one of the things that I do think we need to entertain is what level are these beings from wherever at? Because if they're much smarter than us, they won't think anything like we do. If they've got a different makeup, like, you know, there's theories that they're, they're silicon-based, not carbon-based, some of these entities out there, or that they're interdimensional. If any of these are true, or if it's AI-driven, and this AI is just a million times more intelligent than us, we can't think that they're going to think like us or act like us or do things the same way that we do as Earthlings. And that is your put it in your pipe and smoke it food for thought as you go into Thanksgiving. So my friends, I do hope that you have a great Thanksgiving. As I say, I'll be back on the air soon with something else. Not sure what, but I'll get something out to you soon and make sure that you have an extra 
an extra helping of mashed potatoes and gravy and stuffing and turkey for me, please. And uh, make it uh, some pumpkin pie, pecan pie, and whatever else you want for dessert. Sit back, relax, enjoy yourself, and I'll talk to you soon. Take care.